Hey, everybody, it's Ryan Ripley. Wanted to get a new offering in front of you as soon as possible, evidence-based leadership. And so, as you all know, Todd Miller, myself, and Will Seeley, we're big on evidence-based management. We want to apply it to the leadership space. We all know that modern managers face complex challenges every day. You're juggling a lot of needs, your direct reports, your stakeholders, your customers, they all need constant attention. What we want to do is help you manage that. We want you to use information and data to make good decisions around all of these areas so that we're delivering the right thing at the right time for the right customer. And we know that we're doing that because we're using data and evidence to validate all the things that we're doing. And not only that, we're not just looking at value, but we're looking at our capabilities as an organization. Can we deliver on time? Can we innovate effectively? Do we have too much tech debt? Do we have too many things in process? Are we unable to deliver when the market demands that we do? We look at all of these things with evidence-based management. We merge that into a leadership uh, mindset and lens, and we enable you to make new and better decisions repeatedly based off of the data that you're collecting within your organization. It's exciting stuff. We hope you can join us. Visit agileforhumans.com forward slash EBL course. Join us in one of these offerings. We think you're going to love it. Hope you can join us. Use Agile for Humans, the number four to take another 15% off of this course. And uh, we can't wait to see you there. Agile for Humans is brought to you by Audible.com. Get one free audiobook and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com forward slash agile. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player, including Scrum, The Art of Doing Twice the Work in Half the Time by Jeff Sutherland, and Crucial Conversations by Carrie Patterson. Visit www.audibletrial.com forward slash agile to enjoy your free audiobook today. Processes and tools dominate today's agile discussions, but we are devoted to the individuals and interactions that make it work. From the beginner to the veteran practitioner, we have something for you. Welcome to Agile for Humans. Welcome back. It's another episode of Agile for Humans. I'm your host, Ryan Ripley. Joining me tonight, Tim Ottinger. Tim, how are you doing tonight? I am doing great, man. What a, what a wonderful year this is. It, it's a wonderful year thus far. It's been great for the podcast, great personally, great professionally. I know you've enjoyed some great things as well. What we've done, Tim, we've done something uh, pretty crazy. We, uh, we suckered Mark Davidson back into another product owner discussion, didn't we? <laughs> it takes some doing. Hey, Mark, how you doing? Extraordinary. Thank you for inviting me back. So listeners, if you remember, Mark joined us a few episodes back, talked about the product owner role, what it is, what it isn't, laid some really great groundwork. And Mark, it was one of the uh, episodes uh, in our catalog now that got quite a few comments. It actually got some of the... Actually, I think it's number one in comments uh, as far as questions and tweets and people responding back. So I think you really resonated with the audience and you know, this product owner role, it's a, a mystical, magical thing that uh, I think a lot of people are looking for clarity around. So thanks for joining us last time, and we're thrilled to have you back again. Thank you for inviting me. So this time, we're scoping this in a bit. So last time, we talked about the product owner role from the from a wider angle. Just look, just the, an intro, product owner 101, you could say. This time, we're going to talk about a very key aspect of that role, uh, specifically the backlog 
So the project owner is is responsible for the backlog. Uh, they do a lot of work in that space. And actually, a great product owner will have a great product backlog. And so what Mark and Tim are, are going to help us do, put some parameters around the backlog, have a discussion around what it is, what it isn't, what it does, what it can't do, uh, and just some some practices that they've seen that have helped product owners in this very difficult role be a little bit more successful. Well, let's let's take uh, <clears throat> one more little piece in here. I think we have to be careful with prefixes when we're talking about a product backlog versus a sprint backlog. As we work, let's let's try to keep cognizant of that. I just don't want us to get confused. Yeah, it, it's a great point. So we're trying to stay at just the product backlog level for now. So of course, a sprint backlog is what the the team and the product owner they all come together. They decide off of the main product backlog what they're going to work on in their one, two, three, four week sprint. Uh, to deliver that next increment of, of valuable, uh, deliverable, deployable software. Uh, for this discussion, as Tim said, we're going to stay at that higher level. We're going to stay at the product backlog level, the the part where some of the, the value magic happens and, and some of those other things. So, Mark, when, yes, you're, when you're talking to a new product owner, someone who's about to, to embark on this, on the journey of being a product owner for the first time, and they look at this backlog that they're now responsible for, what's the first thing that you try to, you know, after they have their freak out moment, how do you pull them back in? And, and just what's that first thing that you tell them that, all right, this is what we're going to do? It's a combination of things, I think. The, one of the keys is understand what your minimum viable product is, understand what it is, the breadth and depth that you want to look towards of the product, uh, depending on whether or not you're doing enhancements to an existing product or if it's a new product deployment. If you're talking about enhancements, it's the prioritization, it's the sequencing, it's the understanding what it is that you're going to get the biggest bang for the buck, who's pressuring you the most uh, from a customer standpoint, customer satisfaction. If it's a brand new product, then you're looking at a whole different set of scenarios What's the minimum viable product? What's the minimum table stakes to get into the game so that you have a product that you can get out there? And then once you have that, really divide it up even further and say, okay, what's the smallest, the thinnest thread you can use in order to test your environment? And say, okay, now I've got this absolute minimum. I'm testing all my environments. And then push into, okay, now I've got to build out a product. So if we go... A level higher, but we're working together and Mark, you're coaching me on being a good product owner. And I say, all right, I know these features. How do I get them onto the backlog, Mark? What, what am I doing here? It's a combination of things. One is looking at actual feature level, epic level, feature level, of course, then the decomposition of a story and where you are in proximity to being deliver, uh, to delivering the product. I have all these thoughts about my product and I, and I want to get them captured correctly on my backlog? What are the things that I need to, to think through? What are the things that I need to worry about as I try to populate this, this product backlog with meaningful stories and, and, uh, and, and acceptance tests and things like that? So the first thing that I do with virtually every project I start up or every project I'm asked to consult on is help the product, product owner build a story map. It's a simple concept, basically taking your epics and your features stories, putting them up on a wall, and trying to decompose them and build a picture of what the overall product looks like. It's a, it's a simple concept, 
but it's a complex task and can take a couple of days. We were fortunate enough, and actually Tim was involved in it, I believe, in decomposing a very, very complex product for a mutual client. I wound up with a 40-foot uh, card wall, which gave a complete picture of a product as best we could at the time. And now we can turn around and prioritize the sequence. Most product backlogs wind up 12 to 16 feet wide. And you wind up just, okay, now I've got a picture. Now I start to look at it you know, more closely. So I usually spend the first few days, get a story map together, understand it, and now let's pick and choose. So Tim, when I think of a massive wall full of stories, features, epics, in this story map, story map format, which is a great practice. Uh, we'll get a link to Jeff Patton's book in the, in the show notes because it's a skill that I think, you know, every person on a, on a Scrum or Agile team should, should know and understand well. But what happens when I have this, this, this wall? Am I, have I just committed to a wall's worth of work? Well, that's a possibility, and that's actually what's scary about it. Um, quite often the way it's done... Um, the product backlog was the product of one person's fertile imagination and their understanding of what was going on. Um, quite often, it's small because what are really put up there are very vague kinds of stories and requirements in a very epic kind of style. So um, a telecommunication system, the simple one-line requirement, place phone calls, could be you know many, many thousands of hours of work. So the idea is, you know, we need to work out what's there. Um, have we committed is another question. How much of that are things that we absolutely must do versus could do? I'm a big believer in minimalism there. You know, what is the least we can do to prove functionality before we move on? So I'm kind of an intermediate um, integration kind of guy. And I don't I think actually, committed to it all. I think it's things that we might do, not things that we must do. I actually use Moscow rules, right? Must have, should have, could have, won't have. And I actually apply those rules as early as I humanly can in that decision-making process. So I deliberately work at taking things out of scope on day one. So And, and, and focusing on, okay, this is out of scope. Now that we've taken this out of scope, forget about it, right? Just stop. Don't, don't bring that back up. It's out of scope. If we have to bring it back up later because someone else forces us to, fine. But I actually try to apply those rules very early on to that same process and almost force the decision to, okay, what are the absolute minimal musts, right? And then start from there. That's a really good place to start. So where is, um, what does must mean? Might be a couple of different things, right? Absolutely. I so, agree. So it could be like a table stakes feature. I can't sell a phone that can't make a call. Um, on the other hand, um, maybe the whole purpose of our application is to find, you know, an economic way to do network sharing for voice and text. And in that case, placing a phone call isn't really the first must. It's more about connectivity and sharing costs. So I may have a must that is a table stakes and another must that is validating a basic assumption of value. I completely agree. And actually, that's, that is your prioritization or your sequencing of your musts, right? That says, at what point do you want to build that thinnest line of the walking skeleton? Uh, going back to the, 
story mapping concepts, you can build that, that very thin layer and then turn around and breathe life into that walking skeleton, if you will. Yeah, Josh Karevsky says at Industrial Logic, we don't have a backlog of things we must do. We have a backlog of things we must learn. So I think there's maybe some room there for the idea that, you know, maybe the earliest things we do are the things that let us decide, is there any point in actually conducting this project or this creating this product? Tim, could we dig into that that idea of Josh's around around learning just for a minute? What are the lessons uh, that you've seen that a, that a uh, a backlog or even a story map? What can they teach us? What are the things that you've seen that have emerged from just visualizing the work on a wall? Well, so often with we have some idea of something we want to make, and then Josh pulls us back with, okay, what's the hypothesis? What do you want to prove? with this? How do we know this is a good idea? Um, sometimes, by the way, that's enough to kill it dead. <laughs> um, sadly. Sure. Um, but other times, well, what we're looking for is, you know, how do we know, for instance, uh, this will teach us um, who needs to have immediate contact, you know, for our e-learning side, you know, who's really having trouble? What's a nicer way to see that? Okay, well, Let's, what's the least you can do to have an experiment that shows you some basic information um, so that you can tell you know, if it's going to work or not? So we have a thing that runs behind the firewall so no other person can get to it. You have to have secret handshake access. Um, but once you have the, the access to it, you can see, okay, who's giving us you know, ratings and what do they look like? What's the comments? What's the feedback? Are they completing any work? You know, and we can look at that and say, oh, here's somebody who needs some care. Now we contact them. If they hate being contacted, then our experiment is a failure. There's no reason to take it any further. So 15 lines of Python and 20 lines of JavaScript, and, and you know there's no reason to continue this thing. So we've seen that. Um, also, there's features we wanted to add, and we've done things like feature fakes. So it looks like the feature might be there to see if anybody clicks on it. Nobody yeah. clicks on it, then probably nobody cares. And those are the kind of things we'll often do. So it's, it's learning about our users usually, not about necessarily technology. I find the idea of learning from a backlog interesting because it's, on one hand, we, you can certainly do the experiments that you guys are talking about, and those can be highly valuable, as you noted. You know, you learn quickly what you can kill. And sometimes it's even harder. T it's hard to kill your darlings sometimes. But when you do the type of testing and you have these these real pieces of data, suddenly it's easy to drop that card to the bin and move on to the next thing. Let me, let me quickly note that once a couple years back, we turned around and we started doing uh, UX testing. And what we did was we did it on paper mockups. And we would have some user experience people, and a wonderful person I remember well, uh, who would turn around and she would take the stuff that was coming down the pike in a month or two, and she would start mocking things up on paper and start showing it to people and walk people through ideas. And it was amazing what we got to throw away. You know, the, the dreams and hopes and aspirations of a product owner, it's only to find out it had no value whatsoever or it wasn't going to be used. Or something much simpler would solve the basic problems. And so that was an incredibly valuable experience. Yeah, I, I think those learnings are, are all over the place. And, and having that card wall 
I think you also learn a lot about your sequencing as well. And what you originally thought would have to be the number one important feature turns out to be second or third when you look at the whole picture and realize, well, search is really foundational to these other activities. And, and you start being able to even see a priority emerge. It's almost like an implicit prioritization. You're not even intentionally trying to do it. But as the, as the whole picture comes together, you start seeing these patterns of stories and things that perhaps are grouped together better, and, and it just starts emerging from there. Another thing that I found, especially for teams, at the, even these pairs of developers working diligently on their own sections, is that it's incredibly hard at times to keep everyone aligned on the big picture. But when you have this card wall that's in a prominent place with a with the story map on it, and maybe you even have releases that are that have been outlined in tape, or you have these ideas uh, of when things might land up on the board, it's it's easier to keep alignment, which I think is a very powerful concept too that that the that the product backlog can help us with, and even when we're slicing features down into their their component parts, you can see very clearly how they they flow right back up to an epic. And I think maintaining that and having that alignment, that in and of itself is a, is, a, is a major pro in my book for a backlog that I think can help teams keep alignment, especially when you start talking about multiple teams, you know, doing a, a scrum of scrums meeting or a, gaining that kind of alignment, I, I think is incredibly important as well. So I've used a couple of different techniques, by the way, certainly used yarn uh, across cards and different colors to say, you know, predecessor successor relationships. I've also used different uh, post-it notes on things to say these are completed and these are not. Uh, we've also used what happens if I delay that feature? Well, all these pieces can now fall out. And so that card wall is, is hugely valuable. I've had it to the point where I'll have teams in three different locations and we'll, we'll have the product owners turn around in the various locations, update the card walls before a stand-up just so that everyone can see where we are and what we're doing to give a big picture to small teams out in remote locations. So there is an so, idea. Um, I first saw it, it was describing military political maneuver, actually. But I think that the idea stuck in my head. And they referred to coercive immediacy. And that's the idea that there is something that the very presence of it and your awareness of the presence of that thing changes your course of action. So the example they gave was... a a carrier group parked out 200 miles from your harbor <laughs> that can totally change your foreign policy. <laughs> <laughs> and it will. Indeed. So um, I, I think there's something to the idea that if you have a card ball that's actually a part of your life and you're in a release that is actually part of your life, you know, that as you come in, that's what you do. Maybe at the stand-up is when you move the cards to done. Yep. You know, maybe at the stand-up is when you go card by card instead of person by person. And you say, you know, okay, where is this? What can we do to get something here done today? That kind of immediacy seems to be very powerful. And it seems to have a strength that does not exist if the backlog is a 700-line spreadsheet or in some agile lifecycle management tool somewhere on the web. I violently agree with you. And I... I I couldn't agree more. One of the one of the keys, right, is to get things up on a wall, big and visible. And I, it's it's painful. It's it's experience. Um, it takes work to to keep in synchronization, but boy, it's incredibly valuable. Software versus physical cards. I have not yet found a tool that is as powerful as you know these cards on a wall. 
and just the the tactile uh, nature of it, the ability to physically move it, to tear it up, to throw it in the bin, to to color it, to put a sticky on it, just that physical action. So much of what we do, I find, is it's not real. Uh, it's not. Uh, it's ones and zeros that we move around. We move bits to the left and the right. Uh, if you do it too much, bad things happen. But um, but uh, we're moving ones and zeros around, and we're creating things that are that live in a virtual space. And to just have uh, that moment of something tactile that we can actually touch and move and change, I, I think is very important for a team. And I've actually seen. Uh, in some cases where even the atmosphere and the the mood and the tone in the meetings changes just by having something physical to work with. Have you guys noted uh, any changes like that as well? I'm, or do you actually think that tools have come along and they're now better? Tools have gotten a lot better. They absolutely have. But I'm working with a team literally tomorrow. There's a couple hundred developers and they're used to, you know, moving, literally moving cards uh, in a in an ALM, the reality is I'm going to teach them story mapping and I'm going to teach them how to do story decomposition and we're going to do everything with literally white cards and blue blue tape and move forward from that. Yes, I keep them keep both. You get an awful lot out of the the ALM tools these days. You get your burn downs, you get your burn ups, you get any sort of variances, you'll understand your say do, all the pieces that you 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 need in order to be able to make sure you're still on track, if you will. Uh, but also, more, just as important, if you don't see it on a card wall, if you don't see it, I think you lose an awful lot of perspective. I really do. Tim, what's your experience? Well, now within my company and within the teams I'm coaching, there are two different situations. So within the my company. And uh, we have thrown away more agile tools than we care to admit to. We have not yet found anything that works for us particularly well. Now, let me tell you that we're a team of, of you know, there are less than a dozen developers. And any given day, there might be six or seven, and it may not be the same people day to day. So there's a, a rotation in and out. Um, we also have a an established product. So we're not working to that minimum first release situation. We're deciding what to add to what we have. So we're in a very different situation than, you know, 200 people on a brand new Greenfield product with a whole new goal. And so we operate differently. We are finding that so far mob programming keeps us with a whip of one. And we really don't need to be able to look down the road with halogen headlights. We need to do one or two things at a time. And we need to measure the results of what we're doing and see if it actually is helping. Um, otherwise, you know, we don't need to do much that way. So everything sucks for us. On the other hand, I definitely work with people who are doing um, everything from uh, oil field projects to telecommunications to, I mean, you just name it, health, uh, medical devices. And there is a level where they need to have some kind of a visual element. And on all of those, best choice is to have a physical wall that they actually touch where you actually celebrate together moving a card physically from one place to another, where you can hang stuff on it and write on in the corners and it's not got fixed fields you have to fill in. Um, absolute best. Second best, a giant screen TV in each pod where the developers are that shows the card wall. Yep. 
and everything else is worse. Nothing else works for me. It's a question I get asked every once in a while. It's one that Vasco Duarte asked me on his podcast was, how do you tell if a team is a team? And, and there's a lot of different answers to this question. But the one thing that I look for when I'm working, when I have the, the opportunity um, to work with an Agile team is I'm looking for, can they celebrate together? Yep. Do they care? Because I, I, think, I think that's important. Can they celebrate? And I think that the card wall creates opportunities for celebration. So I don't get excited when a task moves from one status to another in a tool. I get, a, I get an email notification and it's, all right, great, that happened. But if I'm standing at a card wall and I'm participating uh, with my team and we just moved a critical feature over to done, what a great experience and what a great moment that's been created to actually have uh, the opportunity to show appreciations to team members or to, to celebrate and to have the, the high five moment. And uh, that's important. That's a, it's a piece of, of camaraderie and it's part of a DNA of the team that if you're not creating those moments through a physical card wall, I hope you're creating them somewhere else because it can make a huge difference in just how happy uh, everyone on your team will be. Now, I know we're not supposed to talk about card balls. We're going to talk about backlogs. But let me give you one more piece. I'm the most long-winded, and then I apologize for it. Um, my current team, where I am a player coach, they have the automatic notifications. They're using an Agile management tool, and they have it integrated to their Slack system. So it can tell, hey, so-and-so just checked this in. Hey, so-and-so just made a change. Um, so after several months... They made a request to create a special Slack channel called the bot channel or the, the, the I don't know what it was, Jira or whatever, Jira bots, so that all those announcements could go to a channel where they don't have to read them. Interesting. So they don't interfere with, with conversations. <laughs> so it's a question now, is your agile system, is your management tool um, a vital part of your life? Or is it an interruption that actually gets in the way of conversation and communication? And, and I'm just going to leave it at that. So, <laughs> by the way... You, so, Tim, let me ask you this. So, we're, we've talked about backlogs and then expressing the backlogs on a card wall through the use of a story map. And then we, we decorate these walls with various uh, tape, yarn, whatever it is to represent releases, things like that. What's the, what's the argument against the backlog and then the you know, those downstream benefits that we've talked about. What's the, what's the reason not to have one? Okay. So let me, let me give you some things that different people have said. One of them, John Brownstein works with me. He says, a long backlog is just an indicator of a long time to market, which that's either a good thing or a bad thing, right? So maybe if we don't populate it so much, we know we're going out sooner. But people tend to load stuff in. Um, Toby, drunk cod, Toba said, Backlogs are where promises go to die. So people say, hey, I'd like to have this. Okay, here, I'll put it on the backlog. Maybe someday we'll prioritize it. But you certainly can go into organizations and find you know, a backlog of 8,000 items, of which 15 are actually going to be done. But it's just someplace so you don't have to say no. Sure. But then people feel a lot of pressure. We have 1,500 things in the backlog. We've got to really get going. More pressure on developers, which is not yeah. fair. The no. weight of the backlog does not rest on the developer. And it shouldn't wait and it should not rest on the developer. The backlog is not a commitment to deliver something. It's a place to prioritize and sequence work. Right? And some items on the backlog 
are deliberately we're not going to include. And we say, this is not going to be included. And that's okay. Our customer doesn't need it. There are times, though, where I've seen teams negatively affected by having a, a large backlog. And it, I recall a, a team that was very early in, in on their journey towards uh, adopting Scrum. And we had adopted a project that was going badly. Uh, cost overruns were apparent. The, the original dates were, were off. And so we decided to do a rescue with Scrum. And just trying to get the idea that we're not going to put 1,500 old feature requests from this other this other structured project into our new one was difficult. And finally, we had to, to find a heuristic or a metric to help us pare it down. <laughs> and uh, what we decided was, if the feature request was greater than six months old, kill it. And that was negotiated. We started at a month, and the business wanted a year, and finally we came down to this this compromise. What I found was, when it cut the backlog down to, and I think it was right around 150 to 200 features, the devs kind of breathed a little easier. You know, they saw that um, it wasn't this monumental, insane task. It was more, it was more palatable, and I and I think that that certainly helped the the mood and the atmosphere of the team. So I'm, I'm wondering if being able to understand the emotional impact of a product backlog on a particular team is actually a skill that that a product owner really needs to to develop and, and keep awareness around. So let me jump in real quick, because I, I want to hand this off to Mark and listen to him for a minute. Um, but backlog is absolutely promised debt. It absolutely is, and it has weight. And expectations get connected to the weight of that backlog. And I think that matters an awful lot, and removing that weight is important. Now I'm going to pass to Mark. Pro- so... We did an earlier conversation about product owner and the role of the product owner. And the product owner has the obligation to say, this makes sense and this does not. And so something you're not going to do does not deserve to be on the, the an active backlog, if you will. Right? It should be taken out. I feel bad about it, but part of the responsibility of the product owner is make the decision. That's what they get paid for. That's their job description. That's how they're supposed to do their job, right? It's really, and it's, it's brutal. It's hard. Nobody said the product owner role was easy. Matter of fact, in my mind, it may be the most difficult role on the team, but you are playing Solomon. And guess what? There are times when you're going to say, I'm sorry, this feature is not applicable to this product, right? Maybe in the future, someday, far out there, but I'm just not putting it in there. And that's valid. And quite frankly, you will earn more points with your dev team when you do that than anything else you can do. I find, too, that the pushback uh, from perhaps the, par- the product owner or in some cases you know, the stakeholders that they're, they're a proxy for is that what if we lose track of this feature? and Build a secondary backlog. Well, you can have, but then, but then you're keeping two books, two sets of books, like the Hollywood movies, right? It's well, here's the profitability if we're talking about this actor's contract, and here's the profitability if it's for a marketing ploy, and and, and we get to those those double sets of books. The 
it, which can work if it as an initial step. You know, if that's what what it takes to get some of that that promised debt off of the the shoulders of the developers, I think that's great. But I think it's also important to remind people that if a feature is truly important, it will come up over and over and over again. It will be so apparent that we can't live without it that it will get back on the backlog. You know, this it's not it's not that uh, gone and forgotten forever. It's wow, this was really important. Ten users today have asked for it. Let's get this thing back in the in the in the queue or back on the backlog, and then let's have a prioritization discussion around it. So or, there's this fear this fear that it disappears and drops off the earth, but in fact, something truly important will come up over and over and over again. Or someone will pay you to do it. Exactly. Right? I mean, someone will sign a contract for a product or for a COT, or whatever you're building, and they'll say, look, I, I will only buy it if. In which case, hey, you just got someone to fund it. Whole different conversation, right? Yeah, there's nothing to clarify priorities like having money on the table. No, true. no doubt in my mind. Cash I need work. a sexier title for the principal, but I, I keep using the term controlled disappointment. Um, <laughs> so, you know, the problem that we face is that 45% of all features that are produced by software teams are never used at all, according to the survey. So if that's so, how do we not build that 45 and free up all that productivity for the stuff people actually want? Well, if we build it and they don't use it, then that was a speculative work and a total waste of money, right? Yep. But what if we build without it and they complain because it's not there? Well, then it's a sure thing. And if you've got a minimally viable product or you've got your, your minimum product to market, people will yell at you anyway to, to get something else done. That's fine. Right. It's just, and it's it, one of those wicked problems, right? Every solution changes the nature of the problem. Well, I, I'm a very big fan of opinionated software, and this might be a tangent we don't want to go down, but there's a company out there, formerly known as 37 Signals, now they're known as Basecamp, and and they are very opinionated in their software, they do not cave to feature demand, and in fact, when they add a feature, it's a very intentional step, and they take their time doing it, because every feature that you add is, is maintenance down the road. It's dead. And, a- absolutely. It turns into... Um, you're not just delivering one feature one day. You're you're married to that feature for the life of the software, or until you go through the the very uh, damaging work of cutting a feature out. Because once you give the users a feature, even if it's one person using it, they'll never forgive you for removing it. So they're very intentional about adding features. They're very deliberate when they go about it, and they're not very apt to do so. And I, and I find that even that kind of mentality around a product, when you have that flexibility, now if your context doesn't allow that, then um, don't go off and just willy-nilly upset your customers. But if you have the ability to be selective, brutally selective about the features that make it into your backlog and ultimately into your product, it's not a bad way to go, especially looking at the model that the, the Basecamp uh, group has, has put out there. I think that the, um, the ideal situation is that you find a way to use your backlog and your story stripping. I know it's story mapping, but story stripping um, in order to get people to tell you what they actually need. I don't see a problem with that. And it's certainly in continuous deployment environments, it makes a lot of sense. I actually enjoy the idea of continuous deploy, continuous integration, continuous deploy. I love to watch things change and grow. Sometimes with the larger projects, you can't do that. Sometimes it's, you're three months, six months out before you can get a release out. Painful, I know. 
not best practices I know, but given that, you still have to get stuff out there and you still have to keep moving. And sometimes you just can't get the feedback quickly enough. So what do you think about backlog items such as design the data model? Not happening. (laughs) (laughs) What's your definition of done? Give me a definition. Give me your acceptance criteria on that one. Define the message queue traffic pattern for all features. <laughs> that doesn't sound like it's a slice of the system, Tim. No, no. Um, that that was actually came from Alex Frere. He said, if you need a full understanding of the backlog before you start, it's not an agile project. Exactly. Understood. Uh, and by the way, some of the projects that we work on are partially agile and partially not, right? Some of them are fixed price contracts. Some of them are contracts where we're working with teams that are some te- some part of the organization is agile, some is not, and we've got to figure out how to integrate and make them feel warm and fuzzy together. That just that's just a reality uh, of of corporate life these days. So it's it's painful at times, and it and to have a, a card wall, if you will, sometimes can expose things on other teams and expose okay, where are we and what are we expecting from other teams? And that can apply a pressure as well on teams that are not agile and they look at you and say, but we can't pick what we want to work on. We, you know, we're given a spec and we've got to build the whole spec. So, right. And that's a complicated, that, that whole piece of the puzzle is also complicated. Oh, but that takes us right into this really wonderful little sweet spot to talk about because you're talking about there about different people seeing things and communicating and, and, and arguing and asking versus I have to have it all. Um, so, Two questions for you. One, probably the most important one is, who is it that can populate that backlog? Does the, does the product owner have to know every single thing to every level of detail? Um, and number two is, um, what is the product's owner responsibility for forcing that down through the pipeline? Wow. Okay, so anybody can put something on the backlog. It's the product owner's responsibility to prioritize sequence and or remove items, right? That, that's their job description. Um, in my mind, some walk up to the product owner, have a conversation, put something in, uh, and let them turn around and say yes or no. They may say it's the best thing since sliced bread. Why didn't I think of it? Or they may say, you know, what are you thinking, right? We lost money on that the last three times we tried it. So product owner is responsible for maintaining the backlog. I think anybody can put something on it. Um, Second question, more complex, I think, um, in a sense of the product owner's responsibility, uh, they have to to own up to that responsibility. They have to own up to their responsibilities of managing a backlog and managing a product. Did I answer your questions? So I wanted to throw it out here because I've seen the abuses and I've seen the, the successes. And I've worked in numerous teams where um, there are backlog items and they're vague and they're fuzzy and they're huge, monstrous epics. They will take months to get done. And then when it comes time to start the sprint, people are saying, well, what do you need out of that for this week or this two-week period? And the man- product owner says, doesn't matter what you do, I need it all. Yeah. And if you don't cool. give it all to me, it, none of it has any value whatsoever. Well, what do you want us to do? How can you express where you want us to start? I just need it all. 
kneading it all is a wonderful experience. Let's start the decomposition process, and you'll have it in six months. Decomposing doesn't mean anything. I need it all. I, I'm, yeah, but I can, <laughs> quite frankly, I, I can only build a road one foot at a time. I'm going to build you a road one foot at a time. Let's define the feet, right? I, I'm, I'm perfectly fine with I've got to put up a bridge. Well, first I've got to put up my pylons, then I've got to turn around and put up my stanchions or whatever the words are. Then I got to put up my cables. Then I got to put up my. So the answer is yes, you want a bridge. Great. What's step one? And let's decompose it, figure it out, and we'll go from there. I, I, and if it's going to take six months and that's what you want to put your investment in, cool. I, I, is that the right investment? Maybe, maybe not. That's a, again, it's the product owner who has to understand that business decision. And quite frankly, if they, if they goof that up, right, um, they should be canned for it, right? They should be held accountable for making that failed mistake. So, so, so I think well, that that's look at, important. That's the absentee product owner is the reason the backlog is not good. It's the reason the job hasn't been done. So before we go too far, I have in front of me the 2013 Scrum Guide, Official Rules of Scrum, where it says, and I quote, the product owner is the sole person responsible for managing the product backlog. Management includes clearly expressing the backlog items, ordering the items to achieve goals and missions, optimizing the value of the work of the development team, ensuring the product backlog is visible, transparent, clear to all and shows what the scrum team will work on next and ensuring the development team understands the items. Um, there is nowhere in here where it specifies that they can just leave it big and vague and inobvious <laughs> and demand that it all be done or else. There's no foot stomping or arm crossing in here and there's no space for the absentee product owner. Just thought I'd put it out there. Yeah, that is the commitment that, that, business people accept when they decide to work under the scrum framework and and i i wonder if part of the disconnect or the the controlled disappointment that uh to steal tim's lovely term that i, I think is is absolutely wonderful uh if that's part of that controlled disappointment that uh business people feel when they work on a scrum team is that well wait a minute i'm responsible now for optimizing the value of the work that the team does wait i have skin in the game now well, this is interesting. I thought I was just spending money in and giving you orders and telling you what to do. Now I'm actually, I'm responsible. Yeah, that, this, is, this is now scary territory. This is the hardest part of getting the scrum process accepted within large organizations. I'm convinced. I, everything I've seen so far says the developers are willing to do this because they're, they've been beaten to a pulp for years. It's getting... And I, it's getting to a point where you know they, the beatings will stop when you guys have fun, um, <laughs> and so I, I see that and I say that. But now that the product owners and the business is somewhat culpable, responsible, they have skin in the game, and quite frankly, they're measured on it. That becomes critical. Well, and the now, scariest it's scary. It's inversion of control. Yep. Now the product owner is responsible to the development team. They're, they work hand in hand, right? Product team 
is responsible to turn around and say, well, these are the next items that are critical to the business. It's the development team's responsibility to deliver the product. So I think there's, there's a shared ownership at this point. It's but not if, if his job, if the, his or her job, let's, let's leave a her in there, if her job is to clearly express the item and ensure that the team understands what's needed next, then that is a service to the team that they're held to. Right. Yes. 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 I, that, that was our last conversation. Uh, hmm. That 40 minute conversation that basically said, hey, look, you're culpable, responsible. You own this. You're accountable to it. Mm-hmm. Right. Tell me the top three items on your list. Tell me what we're going to be doing in the next couple of weeks. Tell me what we're right. All those pieces that they have to know. They have to. Right. What have you tested? What have you learned from? All those pieces have to be part of the product owner's role. So it's important to point out too that that that's the the scenarios we're talking through. It's not an anti-management or an anti-business slant. Oh no, uh, there's a lot of empathy that we have mm-hmm. that doesn't always get expressed for the new position that we're putting these people in. So Good. traditional IT, I my experience is all with in-house IT in Fortune 500 companies. And, and the majority of that experience prior to uh, working on Agile teams is that it, it's more of the concierge model. And for better or for worse, where the business would show up with some needs that would get expressed in a requirements document, a work breakdown structure, a lot of documentation. And that would ultimately get handed off. And then the dev team is responsible for making sure that that documentation is right, getting clarity, building the right things, and and that was the way that business was run. Now we've it's an inversion of control, as Tim mentioned. We're putting these people in new and in uncomfortable spaces, and so there's definitely a lot of empathy for for what they're going through. And in no way should any of these comments that we're making be construed as anti-management no. or anti-business. Absolutely. Yeah. Th- yeah. Thank you for clarifying. I, I agree completely. I'm not. I'm not saying we're anti-business. I think that we're tired of not delivering the best possible product. And so we're looking for a partner, an active partner, to guide us and help us and teach us. right? And, and that's the side of the puzzle that I'm looking for. As I said earlier, I'm tired of spending millions of dollars of other people's money building the wrong product. Well, and I think a problem with traditional IT and traditional business is that neither side knew what the other was doing. Uh, you know, they would the business side would send their their documentation into a black box and something would come out. And on the flip side, you know, once on the well on the IT side, once we get those documents, we would do our work and have no idea how we're actually impacting the company, how we're helping the bottom line, how we're making business and customer lives better. And with the the advent of Scrum with the adoption of an agile practice, transparency became king. And, and it, it reigns supreme on these projects. And now we're working hand-in-hand. Hand. Every day, the business and the, and the development team must work together as per the Scrum Guide. Or I'm sorry, as per the Agile Manifesto. And so we know to a much greater degree now what the business side of the fence is doing. And they know what we're, the challenges we face. And this, this great mix of, of a newfound respect and empathy and understanding should lead to better working situations, a greater sense of accomplishment, uh, less waste, and far more joy uh, as, we, as we build these products together. The interesting, the interesting part that you're going to find here is, if you remember the good old days, they weren't always good and they, 
It was not a lot of fun. And quite frankly, we delivered late. We didn't deliver the whole product. And we delivered over with cost overruns. And sometimes the thing would fail on, you know, on deployment. So the good old days were not necessarily good days at all. Um, and I lived through them, you know, 30 some odd years in this industry. Mm-hmm. So I look at it from a perspective of this is the opportunity to make amends and make it right. Now let's partner, let's solve this, right? Don't blame me, help me. Right? So I think that's really important here is this, um, as written, when it's actually done, this is an embodiment of the trust transaction. Yes. <clears throat> so I am going to be responsible to you and we will come together and we will decide this is the thing that must be done. And, you know, we give a person the ability to make the ultimate choice so that it isn't, you know, a lot of hedging. That little micro decision, this is the thing we're going to do, allows everybody else to quit hedging and backing in and out and, and, and being uncertain. You know, that's, I have the strength of 10 because my heart is pure. And the fact that it's decided gives us the ability to use our knowledge and skills to get things done. And I think that's very important. And then, of course, it's a short time. So I'm going to show what we're doing as we're doing it, as it's completed. And that will give the transparency back. And then there's trust that comes back with that. I trust you to pick the next thing well, to, to know what your decisions are. And I will, you know, I will ha- try to help understand and help you with those. Likewise, you know what? This is really hard to do this way. Could we do it a different way? You know, the, the product owner can say, oh, well, you know what? That meets the spirit of this and this will satisfy these customers. We're okay with that. Yes, you know, shortcuts yeah. and bargain hunts are good. So it's really about the trust transaction bidirectionally bringing business and developers together when it's done right. Um, yes. On the other hand, Mark and I were on a, in a company where um, they had a meeting each day to talk about uh, which items were live, in progress, which bugs were being closed, um, what's the next deliverable, you know, all that status information. And they didn't invite any of the product owners. Because they were superfluous. Because it was really up to the managers to make those decisions. Hmm. Understood. So, so you know, sometimes people... And we should, the uh, problem was, with Scrum mostly is that people who do Scrum don't usually actually do it. Agreed. <laughs> so uh, there are a whole series... There's this concept that says, you know, you're supposed to be agile, which means you can do whatever you want. And there are pieces of this puzzle that have to be played. And if you don't play it, you're not doing Scrum and you're not playing in an agile world. In which case, you can't blame the tool for your improper or imperfect implementation. Yes, my car will not keep me between the lines. Darn it. (laughs) (laughs) So um, thinking about backlogs. You know, backlogs can be quite a blessing. You know, it's actually good for me as a developer if I can see, well, we're going to do this. And when that's done, here's the next thing. And I'm not, you know, struggling to figure out, well, where's my place? What do I do? How do I contribute? So it can be a blessing until it gets to a certain length. Or if I get beaten with it. No one wants to be beaten with a log. (laughs) <laughs> I, I would agree. I, I, there are times and place. There's a time and place when we should not have a backlog, and there are times and place where we say, "Hey, look, team, go free." And I, the ten percent rule is a really good rule uh, that I've heard banter around. Five percent, ten percent rules, where 
five percent of the time or ten percent of the time, hey dev team, go figure out what you really want to do and go fix this or go do go fix something or go do something or go play with something. So I, I love that that concept. And if you're gonna do more than ten percent, do a little bit of planning, right? So we understand so you understand what it is you want to do and you have a definition of done and you have some acceptance criteria to what you've done. But beating people with logs is probably ineffective. Uh, I, uh, so I, so I, I, I want to go back to what you said, too, also. When you're in a situation where there is you know, a clear, this project is only deployable, is only done if. Right, right. And that involves multiple groups of people, maybe in possibly different locations or different uh, disciplines. How do you see them rallying around the backlog? That's fun. Um, rallying is an interesting word as, as opposed to keeping a focused effort. And I think at that point, you've got disparate backlogs. You may have one backlog and then have, you know, in essence, uh, sprint backlogs or iteration backlogs or PI backlogs or PSI backlogs if you're into the safe world. Um, and you may turn around and say, fine, this is mine for the next four iterations. Um, I can definitely see that and definitely see the melding of them. So you do a decomposition. Here's what I'm going to do. Here's what you guys, this team, this team, this team, this team, you guys are going to attack these things. Let's go figure out how we're going to do that. Come back to me. Here's what you can attack. Go forth and conquer. Come back to me in two months, whatever the magic word is, right? You'll do iterations in there, but um, I can definitely see, the, that concept um it, it's real it's the, the problem the problem slash blessing slash whatever the word is we we build software all over the globe right so uh currently we've got teams in the united states in multiple cities uh in canada in india and potentially costa rica and that's for a single project and now it's okay manage it and understand it and keep everybody focused and so what you're really doing is a single major backlog and then subdividing it into uh, teams and organizations for periods of time, keeping trying to keep everybody else in sync. So, so you get to these points where, say, uh, you're, you're dealing on the next um, mobile phone platform and product owner one has people working really, really hard on the Bluetooth stuff. But the hardware team is actually not onto the Bluetooth stuff yet. They're really working hard on the GPS. So you know, have, do you see those kinds of things being prevented by a reasonably stocked backlog? I think the reasonably stocked backlog is more a reasonably managed backlog. So, and I, that's coordination and management. And it's it's not it's not the fun. It's not the you know we're still picking top cards. We're still managing the cards. Uh, across them, across the uh, across the teams, but that's it's got to be managed, and you, and you have to do it. And yeah, and so the GPS team should not be working on the GPS stuff. They should be working on whatever it is, the Bluetooth stuff, in that particular case. And if that's not practical, then the team that's supposed to be working on the Bluetooth stuff better learn how to mock and better learn how to, you know, fake whatever they've got to fake to get their proper responses, and just keep moving and build to. The old terms you and I used to use when we were kids was contracts. And here's the relationship. Build tests to manage those contracts. And every time you know, we agree on a contract, we keep moving. So this scenario 
and this is a fear of mine that perhaps is a, a topic for another show, is because what we're really talking about is agile at scale. Yes. And uh, my fear is that it doesn't really scale, and that instead we we've put an agile hat on top of phase gating and call it safe. It is a fear of mine that it doesn't scale, but that's also a really wonderful thing, because in the example that we just talked through. You know, we have a GPS team waiting on a Bluetooth team who's waiting on Team XYZ. Well, why are we organized in such a way that yep. teams cannot work together on a project? And why do we have such a monolithic project that, that we cannot get a focused team of people attacking a backlog daily? Uh, you know, it, just, it feels like we haven't, in that scenario, we haven't organized around the, the ideals of, a, of working in an agile way. And we're really just trying to get the, the, the labor side benefits uh, almost like adopting XP as opposed to looking at a different framework or mindset. So here's a, a fun kind of a, a almost a closer question, maybe. Um, if the team is in charge of their process and their work and the product owner is in charge of the backlog and the priority, who's in charge of velocity? I don't think anybody – nobody's in charge of velocity. Velocity is an output, right? It's an, it, Velocity is what's the team moving at at that particular point in time? Yeah, Tim, velocity in my mind would be a byproduct Absolutely. And, and a really poor and a really a poor metric to track outside of the actual team. So the team can keep an eye on it to see it be, because there's indicators that come out of velocity, right? If velocity takes a dip, perhaps someone had a kid and they were gone for three weeks. That's an okay dip in velocity. Or perhaps technical debt has accumulated and we're no longer able to move quickly. Or perhaps a decision was made on the backlog where we were not allowed to do unit testing for a sprint because of some other overriding deadline. And now we're, and now we're slower because we're not safe making changes. So there's these things that it can be used to, to root out but as a metric or as, as something to be in charge of, um, I'm very worried about that kind of framing of a question. I think you did it intentionally because I, I, I see it truly as a byproduct of the work. Yeah, it, it is a highly derivative trailing indicator. Um, it, it may is. be the result of promise. It may be that we had to learn more things than we, needed to, than we knew we needed to learn or they were harder to learn than we thought. It may be that... Um, that we tried something and we're nearly done with it when we realized it was the wrong thing to do. Or the market changed and we had to scrap something. Right. There, there's I mean, a there's, million ways velocity can go up and down. It can go up artificially. It can go down artificially. But the teams do have a commitment uh, to the product owner and to the organizations that they work for to make sure that internally a dip in velocity is not a result of um, something they're doing intentionally. So they, they have that commitment to, to inspect it and to make adaptations so that they're putting forth the best effort and product possible. Uh, it, but to take it as an outside metric, I think, is a, is a major mistake. And, and we also got to differentiate between best and most. Sure. There's, there's, a huge, there's a huge gap between best and most. And, and if you don't understand that distinction, uh, send any one of us a tweet or an email, and I would gladly write a few paragraphs on on uh, what that difference is. Um, now, the product owner being a member of that team and the person who's representing the, the financial side of the effort has a right to inspect and adapt as well. However, demanding a higher velocity for the sake of moving a number up is not a good strategy, nor is it a good way to spend their money. 
I have a paper I wrote on Agile Otter blog, 14 Weird Observations About Velocity. That's my clickbait style headline. Um, but if you want to go, take a look sometime. Um, absolutely, I put that in as a as an opportunity to um, to bring up the point that velocity really isn't something that you manage to. It has a lot of issues. It's highly derivative. It's subject to Goodhart's law. And sometimes the reason why the velocity drops is because you have been running your people absolutely ragged for a long time, and they've just collapsed. Or the stress is too high, or the learning is too low, or the code has been you know, subject to too many shortcuts. And it's perfectly reasonable. The product owner has nothing to do with velocity. And most of the teams that I go to coach who have been struggling in Scrum, the first question is from a product owner, how do I drive their velocity up? And usually they're relieved when I tell them that's not your job at all. Your job is to understand where the product's going and make sure they ha- that the next thing they do is the most important next thing they could do. Well, and if a manager truly wants to give the team the opportunity to improve how many stories they complete, to improve the quality of the code they deliver, or to create a system or an environment where teams can thrive, manage the impediments. Yep. And the byproduct of managing the impediments will be the opportunity for the team to deliver more value uh, each sprint. Right. And that comes back down to my constant running theme that busyness is the opposite of productivity. I don't want my team to work harder. I want them to accomplish more easily. And if we don't work on making accomplishment easy, it's never going to be faster. We're just sweating harder. Well, and I, I think this is a good place to... Uh, stop for this evening. We've hit our time box and being good scrum masters and product owners and, and agilists, we know that the time boxes are important. Guys, with that, we are at the point of the podcast where we like to offer the opportunity to plug anything you have coming up, uh, get any articles or information in front of the listeners that you think would be valuable to them, or to just tell everyone out there how they can get a hold of you to continue the conversation. So, Mark, let's start with you this time. What have you got going on? How can people reach out? And uh, what uh, what do you think they should be reading? The Phoenix Project. I just finished it. It was great. So it's a couple of years old, but... It gave me a great perspective, and I enjoyed it. Uh, you can bang it out in less than a week, uh, part-time. So that's a lot of fun. Second piece of the puzzle is feel free to reach out to me at Agile Delivery. Tim, plug away. All right, man. Um, I'm continuing to uh, look for opportunities in the Midwest, in the tri-state area of Illinois, Indiana, and Wisconsin. Um, to go talk to people about how we change when we're managing teams of knowledge workers and what does it really mean to think for a living. And so far, we're doing pretty well with that. I've been three or four different destinations so far and looking for more. Each time it gets a little better. Do check in to the Industrial Logic blog. There's uh, always something new going on there. And I'll be doing a series there of my Joe and Sarah posts described as articles. Uh, in addition to more thinking for a living type work, and of course the Agile Otter blog. So, guys, as always, this is a, a blast to to talk about the product owner role. So, really appreciate you being here. As far as uh, my plugs and things like that, so there's three conferences that I'm really passionate about and pushing right now. First is uh, Woody Zool's uh, and his uh, Mob Programming Conference. It's May 1st out in uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts. He's pulled together, and I and I think with the help of a few other people the the leaders globally 
on mob programming. They're they're getting together, I think, at the Microsoft Nerd Center on May 1st, and they are going to have just a day of amazing learning around mob programming. I know that uh, Llewellyn Falco is coming in. I know a lot of people from the Hunter mob are coming in. I mean, he's really pulled together the best of the best in this space, and it's a wonderful opportunity to uh, get some one-on-one or some some one-with-many um, time with, with some of these uh, you know heavy hitters in the mob programming space. Uh, Agile Indie 2016, that is on April 12th of this year. So Agile Indie is a conference near and dear to my heart. The Agile Indie Users Group puts this on each year. It grows bigger and bigger. Uh, wonderful, wonderful organizers, great events. Um, oh, and I will meet April you there. What's I that? will be meeting you there. I'm also at Agile Indy. Excellent. So Tim and I will be there. We're going to be podcasting. So Amitai Schleyer is going to come and join us. Uh, there will be an Agile for Humans area going on. We'll be recording the whole time. Uh, I'm sure some of us will be speaking as well. Uh, and so it's just going to be a great... Uh, Great day down in Indianapolis. Uh, great organizers really uh, treat speakers and attendees very well, and it's just a, a really great conference that they put on. The third one is Path to Agility. So this is our friends out in Columbus, Ohio. Yep. They, they they hold this conference at the uh, the Ohio State University, it, and it's just a, a lot of fun. So uh, a friend of the podcast, uh, uh, Faye Thompson, is, is organizing this year and uh, or chairing this year. She's putting together a great lineup of, of speakers and keynotes. Uh, really excited for what the Central Ohio Agile Association, they put together another great conference here in the Midwest. A uh, great venue for um, meeting with people, open spaces available. Uh, just a, a wonderful event there as well. This year, I believe it's uh, May 25th and 26th. And so uh, we'll be there as well. Yeah, podcasting and uh, having interviews and sessions with uh, speakers and, and attendees, just trying to get uh, all of the great Agile stories captured and, and out there in the world. So those are my three plugs for, for this episode, just those three conferences. And if you can make it out there, we'd love to meet with you. Um, if you're a fan of the show and you can make it to some of these conferences, we'd be happy to meet and say hi and, and even get you on for a few minutes if you want to uh, talk about your Agile experiences and journeys. So those are my three. So guys, again, product owner role gets a lot of feedback, gets a lot of questions. I think it's largely misunderstood, and I think that uh, these last two episodes that we've done now on the role are immensely helpful to the listeners. So thank you so much for for spending the time with us uh, tonight to bring some clarity to some of these very difficult topics. I think it's a blast. And to all the listeners out there, thank you for being there. Uh, got a lot of great feedback this week. Uh, one person sent me a very uh, personal note about how the podcast has become a tool for them to improve their craft. That's so why I, I can only thank people like Tim and, and Mark who come on and share their immense industry knowledge and, and their, their agile thinking that this has transformed into a tool for others to, to improve their craft. It's a humbling comment and one that uh, truly am grateful for and appreciate and uh, and this is why we do it. So we're very happy that uh, that you guys are getting a lot of value and, and you're learning something from these discussions. I certainly do, and it's it, it's a ton of fun. So thank you for being there. Thank you for your comments, and uh, thank you for all that you do for the podcast to spread the word and help us grow. All right, that's it for this week's episode of Agile for Humans. I'm your host Ryan Ripley, saying have a great evening. Thanks for listening to Agile for Humans. Let's keep the conversation going. Drop us a question on Twitter at Agile for Humans or visit agileforhumans.com.
Hey, it's Ryan. If you're enjoying this show and want to take a deeper dive into Scrum with me and Todd, check out agileforhumans.com forward slash training. Be sure to also look at the show notes to subscribe to our newsletter, get a copy of our book, Fixing Your Scrum, and learn more about working with us at Agile for Humans. Thanks for listening and Scrum on.